Hey everyone, this is Adam Ellenboss from Nightlight Astrology, and today we're going to be taking a look at Venus's upcoming square to Jupiter. Venus has entered the sign of Leo and is moving into a square with Jupiter in Taurus, which is, of course, Venus's sign. So this is a really nice square because we have reception between Jupiter and host Venus, and they're both benefics. Uh, so we're going to talk about the archetypal combination of Venus-Jupiter today, and in particular, we're going to talk about... Um, we're going to talk about how to keep love alive. And this is a subject that fits really nicely, not only for Venus Jupiter, but for the two planets combined. One of the things that's happened to me over the years of seeing clients is that I, I regularly see clients who come in saying, you know, my relationship is struggling or it's on the rocks and people seek out, even though I have no, I'm not a love guru or anything like that, but people come to astrologers looking for help when you know comparing charts let's look at my chart and my husband's chart and help me figure out you know where our hang-ups are where where are our strengths and our weaknesses you know what's funny is that even though there's lots of things to see when people compare charts in relationships or even parents and kids and how to get along with family members that it's never so much in my humble opinion it's never so much that you have to figure out what the chart is saying and where you're getting it wrong and where you're getting it right according to charts. It's so much more basic than that. I mean, for example, when people come in and they, they're dealing with a Saturn problem or they're dealing with a Mars problem or they're, you know, one place or another in a chart, it's amazing how simple and effective it can be to learn how to develop a mindfulness practice or a, a prayer practice or a walking or journaling practice or some meditation. It's some, like some very, very basic things that we can overlook that can tremendously help and transform and heal ourselves or our relationships that are not so much rooted in the astrology, but are rooted in very simple practices that we can do that can remediate and help difficult karma. And Throughout the history of astrology, there have always been remediating instructions that have been given that really aren't so much rooted in astrology as they are rooted in almost like basic human spiritual common sense that can help and and help to to help remediate any kind of karmic affliction. Well, I would say that Venus Jupiter is a transit that in many ways reflects all of the best practices that I have seen over the years that that are at play in the relationships of people who seem to be getting along as well as the practices that, uh, for example, my wife and I have uh, have used when we're at our best. And, you know, no relationship is at its best 100% of the time, but there are practices that we can use that can help us to enhance our feelings of closeness, intimacy, connection with friends, with family members, with lovers. And I think that there's no better time to say, I'm going to get back to that. I'm going to get back to some of those things when Venus is squaring Jupiter. We're going to explain why that is the case by looking at the archetypal combination of Venus-Jupiter, and then we're going to talk about five different ways that we can access this energy in the next week, say, to return to, or even start, if we've never had them before, some of the best practices that keep us connected and in love with those that we love. So that is our agenda for today. I am going to also be joined by uh, my wife, Ashley, who is um, an herbalist and a longtime yoga instructor, and she will be joining us and... Uh, helping contribute to this topic because, interestingly enough, she has a couple of planets in Taurus, square to Jupiter in Leo. I'm a Taurus rising with my ascendant ruler square to my ascendant, Venus in Leo. So we both have a good amount of energy in our charts across the Leo-Taurus axis. And so, again, just I brought her on the other day when we talked about Jupiter entering Taurus, and it was one of my most popular episodes of the year because I just feel like Ashley has a lot of wisdom when it comes to Taurus energy in particular. I mean, a lot of wisdom with a lot of things, but she's so good at talking and getting to the heart of Taurus energy as a sun-moon Taurus. So anyway, she's going to join us today and help drop some wisdom on us as well. That is our agenda for today, but before we get into it, don't forget to like and subscribe. Share your comments and tell us what do you do to stay close to the people that you love. And it could be anyone in your life. You don't have to be you know, in a relationship to listen to this episode. What do you do in order to stay close to other people? How are you experiencing or accessing the energy of this transit? We'd love to hear from you guys. You can find a transcript of today's talk on the website, nightlightastrology.com. I wanna send you over there as well because our classes are just getting started. Uh, the new class, Ancient Astrology for the Modern Mystic, starts this weekend. So I want to point you to that. It is not too late to sign up, go to the courses page, click on the first year course, scroll down. You can learn more about it. Uh, there are 30 classes on the year. There's, they're all live webinars, but they are also recorded. So you can attend remotely or live 
We have uh, a group forum discussion staffed with tutors. We have breakout study sessions staffed with tutors. So there's a lot of support built into the program to help you through a really deep, immersive one-year uh, journey into uh, the heart of ancient astrology. At the bottom of the page, you'll find some different options in terms of how you can um, uh, enroll. You will find that there is a, um, oops, here we go. Get my little pen. You will find that there is an early bird payment that saves you $500 off. There's a payment plan if you'd like to spread the payment out. And then my massive pen decided to uh, make a circle the size of Delaware. And uh, you, can, you, can see you can see tuition assistance there at the bottom. If you need a little help to make the program affordable, check out the need-based tuition option. If you have any questions about our program or any of those enrollment options, email us info at nightlightastrology.com. So on that note, I'm very glad to welcome back uh, Ashley to the show. Hey, Ashley. Hey, thanks for having me back. I'm so excited to talk about gardening and plants and all of those good things. Yeah, um, we are going to be using, we're going to be utilizing a bunch of gardening and plant metaphors today as a way of accessing this conversation about Venus and Jupiter. And again, because um, Ashley also has a really nice connection between the Taurus and Leo areas in her chart, and, and so do I, I felt like it'd be a good one to tag team. And we've been in just enjoying doing um, some content together lately too. So yeah, um, let's take a look at the transit and then we will get into it and start uh, getting through our, our going through our list of um, of Venus Jupiter uh, practices. So June 11th, Venus will square Jupiter and let's put this up on the screen so that we can see it. So you're going to see that uh, on the 11th of June, fast forward a little bit here. Here we go. On the 11th of June, we have Venus in, oh, there's the massive arrow we're going to take away. I'm going to go down a little bit, a little bit for this one. <laughs> it's always funny when it comes out. All right, so Venus is on June 11th. That's Sunday. So this is your Friday video that's essentially preparing you for the Venus-Jupiter square, which will be coming through on Sunday. Okay, but this energy is in the air for three degrees prior to the connection and three degrees after. That effectively means that Venus has been in the area of this transit since Tuesday, June 6th, and is going to be in the vicinity of Jupiter all the way through about Thursday, June 15th. So you've got a nice long, this has already been in the works this week. So some of what we're talking about, people might go, you know what, I've already been experiencing that. Or you might notice it coming through over the weekend really strongly, especially Sunday, June 11th. And then you may notice it all the way through next week. What we're trying to do today is focus specifically on the archetypal combination of Venus-Jupiter as it applies to practices of love and connection. And we have to ask ourselves, well, why is that? Like, why choose this topic? And the reason for that is that Jupiter, broadly speaking in the ancient world, was associated with Zeus, first of all. And in a broader sense, Jupiter has to do with all of the institutions of um, the world and of our communities and our, our civilizations that hold us together under the banner of virtue, right? So the legal system ideally is supposed to be about justice and fairness and equity. We have um, governments, you know, different forms of government that ideally are about holding a society together in some sense of harmony. We have universities that are about educating us so that we can understand how the universe is put together, is, is meaningfully ordered. That's why we call it a universe university. So Jupiter has to do with all of those systems that we create, not in a Saturnian sense, right? Not in a, like a, a structure that you adhere to with some kind of, you know, strict, rigid, you know, um, you, you can't breathe in it or something like that, like constraining. That's, that's when, a, when a structure becomes that way, eventually it has to be reset and opened back up. And in ancient astrology, those were the cycles. That's what the cycles of Jupiter and Saturn were all about. The, remember, Saturn represents the golden age and the king of the cosmos that is usurped and replaced by Jupiter. And the two were also represented winter and spring simultaneously. So you could say that in a, in a way, Saturn is like the, the uh, Saturn is like a, you can see the garden and what it must have been, but it's kind of dead now. And you're going to have to wait for that garden to appear in the spring again before it feels like Jupiter. 
And Saturn has a really, really, a lot of other really important roles to play. It's not just like dead systems, right? So don't take it that way. But that's one of the roles that Saturn can play is sort of like a system that has become rigid and hollow and it's like a husk of itself and it's sort of dead. Jupiter, on the other hand, represents the system that keeps everything together coherently, vibrantly. The, the word cosmos, it shares the same root of the word cosmetic, which means a well-arranged whole, like cosmetic makeup that you put on your face. You look like a well-arranged whole. So um, this is what my hat is for, because if you saw my hair, I would not look like a well-arranged hole, <laughs> right? But, you know, the idea is that Jupiter provides us with that. So what happens when Jupiter is in Venus's sign of Taurus, an Earth sign? It says the way that the world right now, that what you need in your life, in some area, it's different for all of us, is you need to create a well-arranged whole operating on the uh, premises of Venus, so that well-arranged whole is one that takes into consideration the wisdom of the body, of color, of texture, of taste, of sound, of music, of sex and desire, of beauty and appetite, of food and of uh, friendship and harmony and pleasant sounds and things that work well together in a set, not only in an, a, a functional sense, it operates well, but it feels good and it is pleasant and, and pleasing somehow to the body and uh, the senses. So that's that's Venus's train. So Jupiter is saying, how do we create systems that are essentially about feeling good, that are about looking and feeling good? So when Venus is also going to now move through the sign of Leo and connect, well, then we have something really powerful because Venus is in the sign of the sun, which is connected to the heart. So now we're going really deep into romantic territory. We're saying, how do I create Venusian systems that uphold my life and give it a feeling of ease, peace, flow, beauty? And then how do I connect the heart to that, the personal heart? How does the personal kind of romantic, uh, theatrical, grandiose heart of Leo come in and uh, help to create that, that system? So when Ashley and I were talking about this on an archetypal level, we said this would be a great time to talk um, about the ways in which we can um, create healthy practices in our lives that, I mean, just like I was saying about, um, just like I was saying about how sometimes astrology clients come to me saying, okay, can you help me fix my astrology? And instead, I'm, you know, I go to the to the space of being a yoga teacher and owning a yoga studio for 10 years. And I say, you know, the easiest way to remediate some of that karma is to go for a walk and breathe. You know, it's like it's so. And Ashley, wouldn't you say that as an herbalist, sometimes it's not so much an herb you're handing someone as it is simple practices that can help heal and um, regulate us? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, I think the goal with herbalism is to get the person back to a state of their own self-regulation. And so, yeah, sometimes the best regulating principles for a client, it isn't the plant medicine, it's actually a practice. So mm -hmm. and the practice that they can upkeep and that will really help them stay in that more regulated space. So absolutely. Right. I mean, sometimes we come on and we say, okay, there's this planetary alignment and try to take this herb. You know, oh, I'm not saying herbs don't work because they definitely work. And there's, a, you know, a lot of times where herbs are absolutely needed and they really do help. Yet I think herbs work best when they're partnered with principles or they're partnered with some sort of more holistic action so that there is, um, you know, and that's why, I don't know, I always talk about making teas. It's like the ritual of tea making in itself is healing. You know, even before you bring the glass to your lips, the practice of making a ritual cup of tea every night, that's medicine too. So I think, yeah, I think that there's a lot that we can do in our environment during these transits that can help us reestablish new practices and ways of, of living and partnering with the people in our lives so that it, it's not something that be, is like a chore or like a pill we have to swallow every morning, but these practices become things that really uh, excite us and yeah. and invigorate us. Yeah. Yeah. The way that I think about this, the, the, how we sort of conceptualize this talk was sometimes it's good to give people herbs. And we, when you guys know, when we do videos together, we're often like, here's the astrology going on right now. Here's an herb to work with. But what we realized is that, you know, 
a lot of the times the, the transit that comes about is, is actually a transit that may be opportune for, for launching, starting, or returning to practices that are so basic that, that, um, that we forget how powerful they are. And so with Venus, Jupiter, Ashley, and I started thinking about um, all of the ways that um, just, just, I guess in, in particular, we have a list of five we're going to go over with you guys, five ways that we can um, tend our relationships and enhance and deepen loving connections that we have. That could be with friends, family members, your children, your lover or spouse, uh, uh, people that you work with. How do we enhance or tend the living things first. So we're going to, we're going to go through these five ways. And actually that's, I just gave away the banner. So the banner is, mm-hmm. we talked about this when we, when, when Jupiter entered Taurus, Ashley came on and we talked about this idea of tending the living things first. Will you just reiterate what that concept is about from the standpoint of being an herbalist and a yogi and so forth? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot, a lot of times we can get overwhelmed by the number of things we should do, the to-do lists, you know, all of those. And so to me, this simple phrase of tend the living things first is a way for us to reorient ourselves to what really matters. And it's the living things that matter, not the laundry, not the dishes, not, you know, all of the other things that we might still have to do. But if we can prioritize the living things, especially right now, our relationships first, then all sorts of spaciousness will grow from that. And so I, this idea of what we're going to be talking about today is using the garden as as a metaphor and using at least the way that Adam and I have been living since uh, spring hit Minnesota, which I want to say has been for four months, but it's been like two months (laughs) since things have actually gotten warmer. But um, just from living, living outside and being outside and, and, and our relationship with the plants, how do we use that garden as a metaphor to give some examples of how we can create new patterns and rituals and practices? Yeah, I mean, Jupiter in the sign of Taurus is sort of like the gospel according to the gardener, you yeah. know, and yeah. and the, the the wisdom right now for our relationships that exists in Jupiter, it, that comes through Jupiter and Taurus is very earthy. And so what we did was we sat down and we said, let's think about, um, let's think about gardening metaphors. Let's think about the wisdom of the garden and how the garden teaches us to um, tend to not only the living things first, like plants and animals, but to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does gardening act as a sage, uh, giving us counsel for our relationships? So we have five ways that Jupiter and Taurus as a tender of living things first can help us right now to either return to these practices if you've drifted from them, because that happens. We, you know, we know these things are all intuitive and they're very basic. They are powerfully remediating for some of the most difficult karma we can have in our charts and we can easily drift from them. And at the same time, we can think to ourselves that would be a good idea, but maybe we don't ever try it. So hopefully you'll either return to these things or try them out if you're not. Let's go through them. I'm going to start number one is sharing biorhythms. Um, one of the things, I'll, I'll say this first, Ashley and I, before we had kids, had we, well, we owned a yoga studio together that was based out of a home for starters, but we shared sleep and wake cycles, morning devotions that we did together, a lot of evening rituals that we did, did together, um, and, and, you know, everyone's life is different with jobs and so forth, but there were biorhythms that we shared. Then kids came, you know, <laughs> and then everything. <laughs> right. And so what we're getting back to right now is amazing. Has just as soon as Jupiter entered Taurus, there was just this dawning and it was like, oh my God, there is space back in our lives. Now that our kids are a little bit older, five and almost five and seven now where we can get back to those things. And it, it was sort of like, what? this is so simple. How, you know, it, it's like you can, you can, your, your rhythms can drift apart over time with people that you love and rhythms look different for a friendship or for a marriage or rhythms that you create with your kids. But the point is that having some rhythms 
that, that you feature and that you return to that become like the heartbeat of a friendship, a relationship, a marriage. Um, those things are deeply healing, profoundly impactful, can keep you close, can enrich your life in so many ways, just sharing little rhythms with the people you love. We had drifted from those and we're, we just got back to them. We got back to going to bed at about the same time, sleeping through the night because the kids are sleeping through the night, uh, waking in the morning and doing our devotions like we used to before the kids were born. So those things came back to us as soon as Jupiter re-entered Taurus. I was like, that is amazing. And it's amazing how healing and simple they are. But that's a that's an example of a biorhythm. But Ashley, say more about biorhythms and say more about why biorhythms are, are fitting. Like, how do gardens teach us the wisdom of biorhythms? Well, the plants themselves, I mean, they they live on light and dark cycles. And we too, I mean, even though we don't have, you know, chloroplasts, you know, we, we do also, we are synced up with the rhythms of night and day. So I think with the plants, you know, the the one of the things that they've taught me is that, well, you know, there's that phrase, the early bird gets the worm, but there's something really true about how much we win when we wake up early. You know, we, we don't just get the worm or whatever might be there, but we get spaciousness. And I remember in yoga, one of the main teachings was that you wake up early because that's when the atmosphere is most, most and this is an Ayurvedic Vedic term, sattvic, but it's like the most peaceful. There's like, like the midday is very, very active and late day is more, uh, you know, like lazy and quiet. And it, it you know, it, we become a little more dull in the evening, but the morning is like that, the best time for meditation. And I think for me in the garden, when I'm out in the morning, when the birds are chirping and there's not traffic, there's no, you know, there's really not much activity, there's a peacefulness. And, uh, and, and that's when everything starts to come alive. And that's when the plants want to be watered. And with biorhythms too, the gardens and, and my houseplants in particular, they like watering cycles. You know, my, I have a, a specific cycle that I water all my houseplants and they anticipate it. I have one peace lily who, you know, in the living room, you know, which one bathed the one down downstairs. Yeah. And it will just, if I miss one day, it'll go, huh. it like just, it's like the most, it's like a drama queen. She just will wilt and pretend like she's completely dead. I'll water her. And like within four hours, she's back up looking perky, but, but there's rhythms that the plants have and that they'll show us if we pay attention to them. And I think in relationships, you know, our relationships need watering, they need tending, they need that attention. And I think, you know, if we can sync up like a gardener syncs up and, and pays attention to when the plants need care, if we sync up to our partners and just when, when does our partner need a date night? When, you know, when does the relationship, when do we need a family movie night? Like there's going to be certain rhythms when you're like, okay, I can feel the needs of this other. And how do I sync up and make sure that we aren't going too long before we have these, these really important moments of quality time? Right. Yeah. I think, um, for example, there was a study that was done and I'm, I'm, you know, I never remember where I read it. So I, <laughs> I apologize that I read it was like, it, and, it, and it basically said that kids that get a morning and breakfast routine, and it does not have to be elaborate, a way of waking up that's similar, a way of having breakfast with other human beings, with a family, ideally, you know, that's similar. And you know, some quality nutrition and then they're going to go off to school or whatever. They come home and they're greeted when they come home by someone doesn't, not everyone maybe, but by someone ideally. Now this can't happen for everybody. We understand, but, and that have a routine around dinner and bedtime and that those routines are not just routines in terms of functionally like brush your teeth, blah, 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 but that you create some fun rituals around how those things happen little songs or little, you know, the bedtime rituals with reading and so forth, that kids that have that consistently as they're growing up um, were able to show resi emotional resiliency at a much higher level than people who didn't have those rhythms. And I don't know how they measured all of this or anything, but that was the idea that the, the, the search, the, the research said, creating these little rhythms of wake and sleep cycles of food and of just decorating them with a little bit of meaningful interaction that's consistent from the time that they're in school to the time they finish school sets them up to be just 
amazingly successful on an emotional level, able to endure things that a lot of other people might have a lot harder time getting through. That's such a Jupiter and Taurus piece of wisdom, steady, simple rhythms. Yeah, yeah. And I think that resiliency that you're speaking of, um, that's so important, I think, right now in that emotional resiliency, especially because, yeah, I mean, the, there's a lot of stressors in the world right now. And the more that we can have these rhythms for ourselves, for our children, with our partners, um, it creates security. You know, I think when there's a lot of, of chaos in an environment, um, the nervous system goes into fight or flight or freeze or any of those um, trauma responses. So how do we create these rhythms so that our body can feel safe? It can, you know, stabilize, be open, be receptive and uh, as a default. And then of course, when a stressor comes in, then there's, there's a greater ability to adapt because you haven't been in that hypervigilant state mm -hmm. the whole day. Yeah. I love that. That's a cool study. Number two is co-creativity. Tell us how do gardens teach us about co-creativity and what does that look like in our relationships? One of my favorite things about gardening is the design portion. And, uh, you know, in order to design a garden, there's a, there's a lot of creativity that has to happen. It, it, you know, there's so many different ways to create a garden, but as some, you know, you kind of do have to know plants. You have to know how big this plant's going to get, what color flowers, what is, are the light requirements? So there's a lot of information that you have to gather first. But then once you know that information, planning a garden and the creativity that you can bring out is, it, there's nothing like it because it's a living, it's living art. It's like, it, you know, it's not just, I like to draw. And then it's like, okay, I've drawn it, it's there. But a garden is something that continually evolves on its own once you've done that initial planning and creative process. And um, you know, I think that it's co-creative because I can lay out what it is I want, but then the plants, the sun and the water, they on their own, they're living, you know, like the plants are living. So based on the, what they're getting from their environment, they're going to also create their own, their own things that the, the artist can't anticipate, you know, they're going to show and shine in ways and produce in ways that you might not even, that might not have been on the radar. Um, there are, and but there, you know, I think for creativity, there are at least in the garden, there are some guidelines that can be helpful. And, and there's one in particular. If any of you really like to do container gardening, um, this is a really cool little acronym to help you. But actually, it's not even an acronym. It's like a little rhyme clue or or cue. So it's uh, when you're putting plants together in a container garden, you pick one plant that is the thrill, one that will fill, and one that will spill. And if you do that, if you just have those three things, every time you put your plants in a pot or a planter or a flower box and you have those three elements, it will always look amazing. So, it's Wait, so what's the thrill? So the thrill is the plant with the most color. It's the pop. It's like the tall. It's the one that has like the oranges and the pinks and just the bright pop of color. And maybe it has some really cool variations on its leaves. The fill is the is what's going to take up the most space. Usually it's the greenery and it's going to really fill out the space. And then the spill are usually the, the draping, the ivies, the... Um, you know, the lobelia, a lot of different ones, the baby's breath that are going to grow down and kind of creep along. And so those together create balance every time. Right. So when co-creativity, when we have the presence of these things in a garden, how do we translate that as a metaphor into our relationships? What, is co what does the, the wisdom of Jupiter and Taurus teach us about how to bring that into our, our living relationships? Well, I think you know, one thing, if we think about gardening as art, then if we can bring art into our relationships, that will bring out the best in all parties and it will create surprise. And I think that's something that is always good for relationships is like, show me something I don't know about you or tell me something you've never told me before. And so in the coat, you know, when we bring art into any relationship, there's an opportunity to be surprised. So I think, you know, in a more practical sense, you know, with our kids, um, there's this great little coloring book I got for my girls. It's called like color with mom. And so on one page, the child, there's a prompt that 
prompts the child to draw something. And then mom adds into that particular art. So you're co-creating. And then a conversation can happen around, you know, well, why did you put that there? Or why is mom on a triceratops? Or whatever it might be. Um, <laughs> and then the same thing in relationships. I know, you know, Adam, you and I have been doing some art projects together of just coming up with something that we've been talking about or working on in our relationship. And then sitting down and doing some art and just creating something and then sharing it. And, and yeah. for me, at least, it's been so helpful because, you know, I'm able to see parts of you and, and hear you express things in ways I've never heard you express them before. Yeah, I mean, um, co-creativity can be like, like literally let's sit down and do artwork or vision boarding or something and give, give each other prompts. It can be, um, you know, another one that we did recently was we sat down and gave each other poetry prompts and then 15 minutes to write and then shared our poems. Might sound corny. And if you're not into, you know, poetry or drawing or vision boards, it could be something else. You know, um, creative space could be dancing together. Uh, it could be going out and dancing. You know, it's like, it, it's like just creating purposeful spaces of creativity with the people that you love. Don't just always go to dinner in a movie with a friend. Don't just always, um, you know, go to coffee and and talk about, you know, I don't know, the, the, the latest gossip, even if it is really important and it's good to do that somewhat regularly too. Maybe that's one of your rhythms, you know, but you know, what does it look like to go for a bicycle ride with someone into a place you've never been before? It's like creativity can really look and feel a, in a lot of different ways. So but the, the point is that there's, as I'm hearing you, Ashley, is that you're saying that gardening is a creative process. You're seeing creation happen and you're participating in it. And it, it works on you as much as you're helping plants to grow or tending to them. They're tending to you and the space is ultimately creative. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I'll never forget the first time I grew chamomile and it was like these spindly little tiny, you know, feathery little um, leaves. And then one day there was like flowers. And I just, that, that, that moment will ever forever stay in my mind as like, I helped you. Like I, you know, I didn't make you, <laughs> but I helped you. And I was a part of you blossoming as you are right now. And yeah. um, there's a reciprocal joy that happens, I think, when you're co-creating with another being. Well, that leads us to the next one, which is a little spicy, and that is foreplay or anticipation. Now, foreplay is one that is going to be appropriate, obviously, for lovers, uh, you know, marriage partners or something like that. Um, but the same concept of anticipation is really at play in all of our relationships. So we're going to talk about this from two different angles. The, the basic metaphor that we discussed was that you know, gardening is so much about the process, not the, it's about the journey, not the destination. You get times when the medicine is ready to be harvested or something is in bloom or the flower is showing itself. And yet so much of the joy of gardening is in the, uh, the, the eroticism of it, that, that you're tending to something and, and going along with a process that is building a charge and the satisfaction is so much in the arc of that journey, not just the payoff of taking the medicine off the plant or, um, you know, in the same way that, you know, for thousands of years, cultures, spiritual cultures and what they've said about sexuality, you know, all around the planet has always been, you know, um, building that charge with your lover, not just climaxing, but the, the way that a charge is built for a few days or throughout a day leading up to you know, actual uh, physical intimacy. That's hugely important because you're tending something, you're watching it grow, you're watching it develop, and the satisfaction is really in the whole process. That's easy to skip over when, you know, life gets busy and you still have, you have needs and desires and it's easy to skip over that. In the same way that it's easy to get busy and tend to a garden in a functional way. I got to water the plants. I got to get to work and, there's no sense of that watering the plants is enjoyable and is, is a part of something that's building toward um, deeper uh, intimacy and, and really in pleasure of the senses and of the body and mind. 
How did I do with that one? I'm not the gardener that you are, but how did I do? That sounds exactly, yeah, that's exactly it, is that it is the process that's so enjoyable. And you know, when you were talking, it made me think of um, something that one of my Ayurvedic friends who used to teach at our yoga studio shared was that one of the reasons why cooking is so important and, and not always eating out is because when you are chopping certain spices and chopping vegetables, that as soon as your your nose starts to smell those different scents, your digestive system begins producing very specific enzymes anticipating those things to come in to be digested. So if you're chopping garlic, there's specific enzymes. If there's meat cooking, specific enzymes. If there's, um, you know, bread baking, all of the, you know, your, your senses take that in and then your whole system knows exactly what's coming. And I think that that's kind of the same thing that we're trying to do with intimate partners or any sort of relationship, um, even with our kids is building that anticipation, but knowing what we're anticipating, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it can be specific that you're building a charge for, um, you know, for a more sexual type of experience, or you're building a charge, you know, you're getting your kids really excited to go to Disney World or whatever it is, but that it's specific and consistent. And knowing that your body, like as you tend that and as you're giving your body those signals of anticipation, um, it's giving it a chance to be ready for whatever that that thing is that you're waiting for. There's a, I've, and I've mentioned this um, in, you know, multiple videos over the years, but some people are newer to my channel and may not have heard me talk about um, Caretza before. Caretza is something that um, I've, you know, I've recommended to people. It's not for everyone, but it's an interesting practice that was important for Ashley and I at the start of our relationship. Um, it's a practice of orgasmless intimacy. And it, it, you know, some people are going to find that that's absolutely not, um, you know, their, their taste or their approach. But one of the things that it's really good for is in um, one of the sort of core philosophies of Caretza is about making love and creating um, rhythms or patterns of deepening pleasure, but kind of holding yourselves back from going over the edge. And, you know, Caretza practitioners can vary in terms of the, their, their um, philosophy. Some people will say that even do, doing this a couple times a week and then maybe alternating with a couple of times a week where you climax or doing this for prolonged periods of time in your relationship without any climax whatsoever. And there's lots of different theories, but I will say that um, as, you know, as a, as a couple that had a big impact on us because it really, at the beginning of our relationship, it was something that really taught us to um, not move past the stage of um, being intimate for intimacy's sake, not for the sake of, you know, getting off for lack of a better phrase. And um, I know that much be like TMI for some people, but um, I think that it's important because one of the things, even if you just take that philosophically, whether you actually look up and ever try Caretza or not, um, as a philosophy, that we could all use a little bit more of Caretza in our lives when it comes not only to literal lovemaking, but to pleasure itself. That pleasure is something that we can try to um, experience without pushing ourselves over the edge where it's like I'm past satiation. Yeah, One of you the, know, it, it kind of reminds me of, of what we do with our kids sometimes, which is delaying gratification. You know, it's right. like you really want that thing. I know you want that thing. That thing is so amazing. It's going to be the best thing when you get that thing. Yeah. But you're not going to get it now. You're going to just have to wait. And, you know, <laughs> depending on what the thing is and how old the child is, but that's that delaying the, the instant gratification of something, it really does. It builds that anticipation and that charge. So there's so many ways, I think, to apply this right. that uh, is really healthy. It's really <laughs> healthy for the mind, the body, and, and for the heart, too. Yeah. And Caretza is very similar to many different tantric philosophies in, in just in terms of it being about the, the process, the intimacy, the connection, and being careful about the, the thing that can actually end up spoiling the connection to those things that are most desirable and most satisfying is going too much too quickly and not sort of savoring. Like I noticed that when I go to other countries and I've not been like to a million other countries or anything, but when I go to other countries, there's a 
certain places in the world, it's much more common to move through your meal and all the stages of a meal much more slowly and to, um, to savor it, to let a, to let an, a dinner be an entire evening, mm. to let the dinner be as much about a social experience as it is about just filling up because you're hungry, you know, Th that kind of philosophy, I think overall is what this, this is about gardens don't, um, do much super, super rapidly, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And I think one of the other things that we've always had the philosophy of, and this is fun for friendships, for families is have things that you look forward to that are in the distance, a trip you're going to take a concert you're going to go see, plan things out, you know, a month or two down the line that you can have to look forward to because half of what makes our relationships so fulfilling is the anticipation of the great things that we're going to do, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, let's go on to number four, which is intimacy and privacy. Um, tell us about how gardens give us the wisdom of intimacy or privacy. I think a lot of people go to gardens and they find themselves in gardens looking for a, pe a peaceful place where they can be with their own thoughts, where they can be away from a lot of technology and uh, away from a lot of people talking at them. <laughs> so I, I think nature and people go to nature too. I mean, we think about a lot of the great poets um, who ventured into nature to yeah, to clear their minds, to get privacy so that they could build intimacy with themselves, uh, with their souls. But I also think that, um, you know, one of the things that gardens can really help us, uh, ex you know, um, appreciate is the process of growth and, um, and sort of the quietness under which real intimacy happens. I know for me as an herbalist, when I'm out in the garden, it's really when I'm by myself that I connect most deeply with the plants. You know, when I sit there and I stroke their leaves and I smell and I look and I listen and I check the soil and, you know, really spend that time, that's when the bonds come or when I sit in a forest. Um, those quiet spaces are where uh, where it happens. And, and, and I, you know, it's, it's hard because, you know, I have an Instagram following. I'm on YouTube, probably like a lot of you, but you know, it's like, don't take a picture, Ashley, don't put it, don't post a picture of you in the garden. And it's like, you know, it's like this weird push and pull of like, I'm having a moment. This is my moment. And it used to be that I would, I, I would take pictures all the time and post them of me doing things in nature. But but it's been interesting, especially I think in the last like six months and even more in the last few months, that just doesn't seem as appealing. It's like somehow I'm noticing that the magic of those moments dissipates when I post them. Yeah. Yeah. That's really nicely put. I think um, one of the things that's really things that we do with our girls is we take days where one of our girls will go with me and the other will go with Ashley to have you know, daddy, daughter, mommy, daughter dates there. It's just alone time with us. And then we'll switch on another day and we'll do it in reverse. Every relationship needs a feeling like I think of that famous story, the secret garden, mm. you know, the heart likes secrets and it likes privacy. And some of the most beautiful things, you know, have to grow in very specific little nooks and crannies. And I think the, the wisdom of Jupiter and Taurus, if we think of the wisdom of a garden is that we need to create spaces in our lives and all of our relationships where things have like quiet little corners in which things that can't come out any other way will, will come forward. That deep talk that you have, that revealing of things that you haven't shown or said. Um, so intimacy and privacy is something that gardens seem to evoke and that all of our relationships really need. And it's so easy if you take the time to be quiet and gentle with another soul going on a walk, you know, getting out in nature, if that's your thing, those spaces end up being so healing and so helpful. And they can, people always ask, how do you remediate bad karma around this or that? It's like, you know, find some quiet time for yourself, find some quiet, intimate spaces with people you care about. It's just, it works wonders. Number five is healing connections. This one is right up your alley because you're an herbalist who literally uses plants to help people heal. But tell us more about this metaphor. 
being in a garden and, you know, I think it was your friend Tom who said something about, you know, isn't it funny that we need these studies studies to tell us such common sense things like being in a garden is good for your mental health (laughs) (laughs) or walking barefoot is good for your mental health. There's this thing called forest bathing, but it's really, it's very simple stuff that when we're in nature and when we're, when we're, especially for me, and I think a lot of people that work in gardens, when you're in the garden, you're only in the garden. You can't be anywhere else. You can't, it's really hard to multitask when you are in nature and engaging really in a present way. And that's healing. Our nervous system needs that. Like we need time where we're disconnected from, you know, all of the different social media outlets and and times where we're just really plugged into one thing at a time, including our partnerships and our relationships. So I think the healing piece is so important because if we don't make time and we don't give presence to those relationships, um, we're not going to, there's not going to be that possibility of reciprocation Mm -hmm. of the healing coming back to us through our efforts. Yeah. It's, you know, one of the reasons that we are here is if, you know, if I had to put at the top of my list, like, why are we here? The big philosophical question. It's cheesy. It's, you've heard it a million times, but it is to love and be loved. Mm. And one of the things that we do is we carry so many things and the heavy things, you know, we carry burdens, we carry hurts, we live with trauma and there's a lot of uncertainty and fear and insecurity rooted in being alive. Just the tender vulnerability of being a living being. And part of how we remediate that quite literally is to have relationships, to, to feature and focus and move up the priority list closeness with people that we love, family, friends, lovers, co-creative people that you're doing stuff with at work, whatever. Because when we focus on those connections in the same way that a garden offers naturally just offers medicine, so many plants are just medicinal. So many people are medicinal. Most people that we know and meet and spend time with, we spend quality time with them. They they are literal embodiments of medicine. They help us heal. They help us let go. They help us grieve. They help us process. They help us understand and not literally by acting as therapists, but by being embodiments of love. Just in the same way when you go to sleep at night, your body naturally heals itself. When we spend time with other human beings in loving connection, friendship, joy, fun, laughter, spontaneity, play, intimacy, privacy, foreplay and anticipation, uh, building a charge with people, being creative with people, creating healthy rhythms with people. When we do these things, people heal us. And we have the chance to heal other people. So beautiful how, you know, how, how profound we can, it's been to, for Ashley and I to sit down and access some plant metaphors that can, Jupiter and Taurus can help us right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great. And I think it points us back to how simple it is, which is what we kind of opened with, which is, you know, really we can distill we could take each one of these points and just, you know, even if we can just do a l- one small thing from each of these categories, like it can make such a profound difference. And I love that there's so much Taurus energy in the air <laughs> that like makes exactly. my heart so happy uh, and my, my, my soul so happy. But it just seems like it's a great opportunity right mm-hmm. now to, to say what, what food, like what fertilizer, what will fertilize the relationship that I want to grow the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to tell everybody how you can um, follow Ashley and her work. First of all, you can check her out at skyhouseherbs.com. I'm going to actually pull it up on the screen so that you can see. Ashley has some garden gatherings happening this summer um, at our home uh, community medicine garden here in Minnesota in the Twin Cities area. So you can check those out under the events tab and everything else that Ashley is up to on skyhouseherbs.com. On Instagram, do I have it right? Is it skyhouseherbs on Instagram as well? Yep, it is, yep. And then on YouTube, you can also follow Ashley's work. She makes regular content on herbs, plant spirit medicine, uh, herbal wisdom, and uh, sometimes our crossover videos will appear on her channel as well. Uh, But it's skyhouseherbs on YouTube as well. Do I have that one right? 
You do. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, the, the <laughs> Ashley's happy because the last, I think time or two that she came on, I totally forgot to plug her YouTube channel and her Instagram and her, <laughs> and I was like, I, I suck. I'm so sorry because I'm just, <laughs> I am like, no, I'm like very, very good. When I have guests on, I always plug their stuff and my wife is in the other room <laughs> And I just was like, everyone knows Ashley. I and so I just spaced. So silly. And me. I was like, babe, maybe next time, if it's okay, we could just mention, you know. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's totally okay. And thank you for remembering because I didn't even remind you. It's because we've been building this closeness. You anticipated my needs, so thank I you. I can't even tell you guys like <laughs> the fact that we are are wake sleep cycles, our spiritual morning routines, our evening rituals, all these things that we did that were so healthy for us before we had kids. <laughs> the fact that they are back right now, it, I feel like the peace lily, man. I feel like the little dramatic peace lily that got yeah. the water again. So for you guys out there listening, like people who really love each other, friends, family members, lovers, it is very easy to lose track of the simplest things. Like I wouldn't, I didn't think, well, there's not like I'm walking around like, oh, I'm unhappy in my marriage. Right. And you might have friendships in your life or your kids or whatever. And you're like, I'm not unhappy. Nothing's really wrong. Yeah. But add dinner time together every night or add, you know, walk these with little, the dog. Yeah, you know? exactly. Add the little things in and watch it just blossom in ways that you're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm feeling good, but it can actually be so much brighter, happier, you know, everything else. So Anyway, thank you so much for being here and helping illuminate this topic for us. I love you and it's I so much fun you. to Yeah. <laughs> I love you, love you, love you. And thank you. I, I do. I love these. I love our talks as well. And yeah. let's do it more. Yeah. Well, thank you everybody for listening to us, Gush, and uh, hope that you find something good in this and share us, share something about your own wisdom and experiences with us in the comment section. We'd love to hear from you guys and we will see you again uh, next week. Take it easy, everyone. Bye. Bye.